Welcome to Centering Centers, a Pod Network podcast exploring the work of teaching and learning centers and the vision and insights of educational developers. Pod is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members through professional learning and interaction. This podcast is produced by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee. To get involved, email us dri at podnetwork.org. This is episode 51 of Centering Centers. I'm your host, Lindsay Dukopoulos, Associate Director for Educational Development in the Biggio Center at Auburn University. Today I'm speaking with Josh Eiler. Josh Eiler is Director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and Director of the Think Forward Quality Enhancement Plan at the University of Mississippi, where he is also a clinical assistant professor of teacher education. He previously worked on teaching and learning initiatives at Columbus State University, George Mason University, and Rice University. A sought-after speaker for his expertise about the science of learning and about compassion in education, especially in connection with students, grades, and mental health. He has spoken at college and universities across the country. Eiler is the author of the book, How Humans Learn, the Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching from West Virginia University Press, which Book Authority named one of the 100 best education books of all time, called A Splendid Repository of Ways to Rethink How We Teach College by the Los Angeles Review of Books, It was named a Book of the Year in the Chicago Tribune. His second book is forthcoming from Johns Hopkins University Press in 2024, Scarlet Letters, How Grades Are Harming Children and Young Adults and What We Can Do About It, is about one of the most urgent issues in education today, grading and alternative assessment. Hi, Josh. It's exciting to talk to you today. Thanks, Lindsay. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start off by setting up the first question using the first chapter of your first book, How Humans Learn, which is just a wonderful book about the science and storytelling of of learning, quoting the, the subtitle, of course. There's a section about what do we have in common, and you reference evolutionary development and the study of the things that we've shared instead of the differentiation aspects of it. You came from leading the center at Rice University, and you're now leading the center at the University of Mississippi. What are the commonalities in those two centers in the role? And what are the significant differences that might help us understand a little bit more about your background and what motivates you in the field? Wow, that's a great question. I guess I could start maybe with the differences, which are probably pretty easy to intuit. And the major differences are tied to the very different cultures of the institutions. And as you and all the listeners know, a teaching center is a product of its institutional culture. And that's what we respond to. And that's what all of our programming comes out of. And so the different 
the different missions of the institutions, one private, one public, and currently University of Mississippi has an open access policy for graduates of the state of Mississippi. So different missions, different uh, number of students, different focus areas within, within disciplines, within undergraduate versus graduate student, et cetera, very different kinds of contexts. And I think the teaching centers, the programming that I've been involved with developing in both centers with my colleagues look different because of that, right? That said, I think there's still a lot of commonality. I strongly believe that a teaching center and R1 should be should be a hub of teaching related research meaning that folks come to us when they have questions about the research on teaching and learning and also that we are involved in doing research on teaching that can contribute to that larger mission should be a place that brings people who are interested in doing SODL together and cultivating some SODL related programming and it should also tie its programming to the significant balancing act of teaching within a research-focused context, right? And so that's pretty similar, I think, across both. The Another similarity, I would say, is just the folks that I was able to hire at Rice and those here have just been the the absolute best people I've ever worked with. And I put a lot of emphasis on the hiring process because I really believe if you hire hire the right people and let them do the, the great things that they can do, the sky's the limit in terms of the impact on teaching at the institution. And so that has been true in both places. And I like to try and find future colleagues who are not necessarily specialists in a specific aspect of what we do in the teaching center, but those with a broad range of experiences who believe passionately about the effect of great teaching on student success and who have some who have some interest in higher ed writ large and the role of a teaching center in organizational development and so i've just been very lucky in both places to to work with amazing people so two follow up questions first based on what you just said how do you see it how does that show up that passion that vision especially for other folks in centers who are have different hiring needs and practices. Mm -hmm. This is something we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast, but it's important and central to our work. I think it can come across in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's candidates who are talking about their own experience in the classroom and the work that they've done with those students. And you just, you, it's palpable. You feel their investment in the work of teaching as a driver for student success. Sometimes it, we tend to ask questions about what's what's a recent book in teaching and learning that you really loved and why. And you get you see a sense of, I think, through the answers to that question, uh, a range of approaches, a range of interests. Is it this book versus that kind of book? And how does how can what they're saying about the research or the literature in the field, how does that communicate? The, I think the way they envision the role of a teaching center at a university and the conversations that emerge from that. So I think it could come from a couple of different directions, but, but it's definitely something that I look for. 
I love that. So I'm going to ask you that question as well. What book are you reading that you're interested in? That's such a great question. Mm, but I wanted to go back to the first point that you made about the, the role of the center in scholarship of teaching and learning. You mm -hmm. said that the people in the center should be doing the scholarship of teaching and learning. I know there are some institutions that push against that mm -hmm. and don't really see folks in these roles as academics who should be practicing and, and engaging in that outside conversation. Sure. They should just be focused internally. What would you say to that? What's your argument for the value of that work for somebody who works in a center like yours? Right. I think there's so many uh, benefits of having teaching center folks do that kind of work. One is staying current in the field. If you are, it's one thing to read it and staying up on the field. It's another thing to be invested as a practitioner in the field and doing the work of research in that area. I'm not saying that keeping up with the field is not in itself a good, uh, but I do believe that being an active researcher brings a different dimension to the the facilitating workshops, for example, for uh, leading learning communities on a particular research-informed topic. Uh, if you're actively doing that work or in, you are uh, just immediately in the weeds of the research all the time. So I think that's important. I think that I, I'm really invested in the folks who work with me achieving their goals for their professional lives. And a lot of folks who are interested in being in teaching centers want to continue the to develop their scholarly selves and the threads of scholarship that they had been working on or push their writing in a different direction, move into writing books or doing podcasts or something like that. And so I think it's a an underappreciated maybe avenue for professional development and professional fulfillment in these careers. And then the third reason I think it may be important is that I think it does help in our work with faculty for them to see us as scholars doing the work that they are doing just in a different disciplinary context. So I really value it. I think it is tied to, in some ways, the first question you asked, though, in my background is as a faculty member. I moved from a tenured faculty position. I gave up tenure to move into the teaching center world. And I see, I still see very much the organization of the teaching centers I've been a part of as an academic department, really, right? And so that's the philosophy uh, I think that we all share. And so because of that, we, we really put a lot of emphasis on developing all aspects of our professional selves and really supporting each other and cheering each other's successes on in those realms. So I think that feeds into it a little bit as well. I heard somebody say once, in terms of tenure, to move from assistant to associate, you've got to make a name for yourself in your field. To go from associate to full, you've got to make a name for your institution based on your work in the field. And I feel like that's a really good metric. We've got some new folks who are onboarding here, and I was right. sharing with them in this assistant level, this mm -hmm. is what you're trying to do, and this is gives you a way to develop and think about it over a long-term career instead of just... Right. A single. Yeah, no, that's a great way of thinking of it. I like that. So the second question I wanted to ask you, written question, not a uh, response question that, that are popping up, is really, again, dovetailing off of all of this about your first book. So your first major publication in terms of doing research on teaching and learning, which was called How Humans Learn. And it focused on the science and stories behind college teaching. Right. And as a creative writer, I am very interested both in all of the stories you share. I love that's 
looking back, I read it a few years ago when it came out and preparing for this interview, I was like, I remember the story with his teacher that inspired him. I remember <laughs> this, like the stories right. really are the things that resonated. So I wanted to ask you, what role does storytelling play in effective teaching and learning and mm -hmm. by extension in effective faculty development? I think that storytelling has a, a number of different roles in, in effective teaching. One way that it can benefit students is to provide them with um, authentic framing for whatever it is you're talking about. One of the examples I use in the book, it's one thing to talk about some sort of scientific phenomenon. It's another to share a story about the scientists who, who made the, the discovery that led to our information, or to talk about the effect it might have on patients, like sharing a patient's story about a particular medical phenomenon, something like that. It, it allows them to create the networks of understanding in their brain that let them hold on to the information, uh, I think, more effectively, so that... When they come to an exam, for example, if, if there's a question about the particular scientific phenomenon we're talking about, what they begin to remember the story and that leads them to the facts. It's a web of, I think, of conceptual understanding that, that storytelling really helps with. I also think storytelling can engage them. It can interest them. Sharing stories of yourself in the discipline can help them see themselves in the discipline, sharing stories of colleagues that you know, or looking at diverse voices in the field can help students, again, imagine careers in that, in that discipline in ways they might not otherwise be able to. So I think storytelling plays a number of different roles. For educational development, I think similarly, it's engaging. Stories are engaging, right? But in particular, as I'm reflecting on this question, the way stories have uh, been useful as a tool in educational development is our colleagues want to hear about instances that these strategies have been effective. And a lot of that work comes through telling stories of other people at the institution or beyond the institution. And so whenever, I'm sure this is true of, of you as well, Lindsay, that a number of different workshops, we bring up the strategy of peer instruction. We could certainly just launch into talking about step one, a student works individually and answers with phone. Step two, you could do that, and we do, but it has always seemed to me more effective to begin that, begin that part of a workshop with the story of the development of that strategy. Why did Eric Mazur find that this, uh, what led him to, to think that this was going to be a useful strategy to begin with. And the work in Arizona of those folks on the concept inventories, right? Why was it that they got there? So I think storytelling can really help faculty engage with the work that we're doing, become more invested in the potential of trying out a particular strategy. I do not know the story of the concept inventory, Arizona people. Oh, it's okay. Can you uh, share it with us? <laughs> well, I, I can never remember if it's University of Arizona State, but I think it's University of Arizona. It's essentially very parallel to what happened with Eric Missouri at Harvard, that in intro physics classes, they were discovering that even the students who were getting A's on the exams had pre-Newtonian understandings of physics. So they could plug and chug the equation. But when you ask them about what happens when two cars going this, this fast hit each other, they, they really didn't understand the concepts underneath of it. And they went the direction of concept inventories and Eric Mazur went the route of 
peer instruction. And so I just think faculty are interested in that kind of history. I think teaching and learning or pedagogical initiatives seem like they can be like cookie cutter or out of the box here, try this, but all of it has a history. All of it has a story, right? And and it, it's not always a super linear story either. And so I think it's worth sharing with them. So as you're thinking about working with faculty in particular, I know we work with more than just faculty, but I'm curious, is there anything unique about the way that faculty learn? Your book is about how humans learn. Are right. faculty humans, I guess, is <laughs> what I'm asking. <laughs> well, part of what I found there is that so much of the way we learn is is similar. So many fundamental aspects of learning are just consistent because we are of the same species. But faculty, I think, by and large, have been successful in academia in spite of the obstacles, I think, that are often set up to learning in classes. They've taught themselves how to how to do this particular kind of problem when they weren't getting that information in a class, right? And so they've They've been able to move through the academic world by teaching themselves how to learn in ways that I don't think are always true for every student in our classroom. So I think there's a sense that, and this is both a benefit and sometimes a challenge. The benefit is that they've been successful, remarkably successful through sometimes really significant, challenging curricula. The obstacle is sometimes it leads some folks to think that everyone has done that and everyone can do that. And I think that when we're talking about inclusive teaching or other kinds of reducing DFW rates and things like that, that if that has been your story, that you have, you have found a way to succeed in spite of the obstacles, sometimes it can be hard to see the obstacles from where you are now. And what students who can't get around those obstacles in traditional settings, what kinds of pedagogical strategies they might need to be able to climb over those obstacles. Yeah, that's such a challenge. And I love the idea of using stories as these are different pathways. These are different routes to get to the end. There's not just a single approach that's going to work for everyone. Yes, definitely. So your next book, you've been posting a little bit on LinkedIn and other areas that it is coming out within the next year or so. Um, it be, the projected date is September of 24, so less than a year. It is called Scarlet Letters. I want to ask you about that title because I think it's amazing. <laughs> and the way that it sets up what that, that book is about. And tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. This is, it's a slightly new direction for me, obviously still about education and teaching, but it's a book where I'm imagining a different sort of audience. Certainly faculty would be interested, but it's written for parents, educators, students, policymakers. It's a, a wide audience. And also it's about both K-12 and higher ed. So it really looks at the problem of grades from a 30,000 foot level. And that's what the first half is about. And then the second half is what are some ways that we can help with this in the home, in the individual classroom, and then the systems writ large. How can we make change happen? How can we advance grading reform in those different kinds of contexts? Yeah, it's really, again, I as with how humans learn, I, I learned a lot in the writing of, of this book. And the in writing about the challenges and the problems, that was 
it was really revealing how not only how interwoven grades are with so much of or so many of the other challenges and other problems we see in educational systems across the board, but also just the significant issues that people have at every level that, that, that grades are either causing or somehow related to. It's, it, they're inextricable from all of these other things that we're seeing happening. That means that looking closely at them can really be of an immediate help to a, a very large number of students, but also means that there's no easy one solution that fits all because of how tied they are to so many different elements of education. We have to attack it from different, from many different kind of angles because there's not just one thing that's going to make make things better. If you waved your magic wand right now and said, "Poof, no more grades ever anywhere," you'd still have a ton of things that you needed to deal with, right? And so it's not that's not the sole answer. It could be part of a bigger answer, but in general, there there are lots of different ways that we have to approach it. And when you're thinking about grades from this big picture, why? Why have them? What do they do for us systematically, individually, et cetera? What's the argument for them? (laughs) Again, it's partly historical, right? Grades go back. The idea of grades and ranking and sorting go back hundreds of years. But the actual way that we grade now, A through F, was only standardized in the 1940s in America. And they weren't even, it wasn't even invented really until the late 1800s, right? People were searching for a way to be able to communicate to individuals about their progress, but uh, the actual system itself was not adopted because people thought it was the best way to do that. It was adopted because it was an easy way to communicate between different institutions, right? If I put an A on a report card, that signifies something no matter where you are. And so that's why, or the claim was that it signifies something no matter what institution you're in. And they were meant to show progress and meant to measure learning, but they've never actually measured what we say they measure. And they were adopted for reasons that have nothing at all to do with actual learning. So it was flawed from the start. And when you start to look back in the history of it, people from the very beginning who are publishing papers that are just, they're crying out into the wilderness that stop now, hold, stop the presses. This is not, this is not doing our students any good, but the train just kept moving. What is, in your mind, the most harmful thing that you see practiced widely? If you could wave your wand, hmm. it would be the thing that you would try to eliminate and why? Yeah, I, have, I do have an answer to that, one that springs immediately to mind. The answer is grading curves. That, that is by far the consensus of research, that grading curves, and all kinds of grading curves here. So the two most popular are the bell curve and the, the practice of bumping the highest grade in a class up to 100 and then scaling all the other grades down. That's a different kind of curve, but a curve nonetheless. And those are the most inequitable practices that we have for all kinds of reasons. At their most basic, let's just, if we're, even if you assume the homogenous population of students, which we do not have, but if you assume that a grading curves would, they, what they signify to students is 
I still haven't learned what I need to learn, but I got this high grade anyway. In no way am I now prepared for the next exam, but at least I got my 92. And that's assuming just a homogenous population of students. But now when you add in students from all kinds of educational backgrounds, some of which come from poorly resourced schools who have opportunity gaps as a result of that, and, and who have not learned, who have not had uh, opportunities to play the game of grades and school uh, in the same way that students from well-resourced schools have. Now, grading curves not only send those messages, but they also uh, put them even further with more work to do to catch up than they otherwise would have to. So they're inequitable from all possible angles. And yet we still, we're still here using them. They're still going strong. Yeah, they are. What's something that somebody who's listening to this could do like today? I think the moral of the story about grades is that it is completely false that you need a grade to certify that someone has learned something. It's feedback that is used to communicate that someone has learned something. So I, you can perform something and I can give you the feedback that, yep, You've got it, or you need to keep going. Here's what to think about. That's what feedback does, not grades. And what someone could do tomorrow is to create an assignment where they give only feedback and no grades. We have a lot of interesting research on the, the effect of getting only feedback and not grades on an assignment. That's something that someone could do tomorrow. Another thing is a, a slightly more complex thing, I think adding in a student reflective component to an exam or a paper where they digest your feedback and they create a plan going forward, or they, they talk about what the feedback means for their learning, something like that. That's an additional element. But those two things are very low stakes for the instructor and for the students themselves. And I think that could be done tomorrow. I love that. And I'm just thinking about how could that apply up to the adult learners and the professional learning context that we work in as educational developers, where it's not yeah. often we're grading faculty. We might be. Right. I, Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. The, the best part about this role, right. I think, is you don't have to do that grading, which I come from a, an English background as well. It is such intense, emotional, cognitive labor to grade writing and I think Absolutely. in any discipline that is that's a place where we spend a lot of time anxiously thinking about best practices but don't always have a lot of alternatives or other kinds of stories or ideas to apply and I use myself as in the classes I teach an ungrading or collaborative grading model and I now bring that approach that of a coach in the feedback rather than a, a judge to all the different elements of my professional life. So in observations that I'm doing, the feedback is very much the spirit of a coach and, and letters that I write, things like that. So it's really had an impact on the way I, the way I do my job in a center for teaching and learning. So it, for me, it's all tied together. So I think your point's a good one. So coming back around to the title, who is Hester Prynne in this scenario? <laughs> the protagonist Sadly, from the yeah. novel that this is referring to. Why? Wh where did the title come from? What are you hoping to convey with that metaphor or analogy? Like most things with writing, I wrote my way into that title. Uh, I was writing the preface and happened to, the sentence came out, grades are like scarlet letters. And then I paused and thought, well, that's interesting and wrote a little bit more about that. And 
then decided it would be a great title for the chapter and then the book itself. And the the idea that that grades are mark mark people and that they are given that that we don't give ourselves scarlet letters. Hester Prynne did not put that A on her own chest. It was given by society as a judgment that they made about who she was, right? And although there's a lot of important messages in that novel about her femininity and her sexuality that's wrapped up in that letter, and I think that those are really important, and probably that part of the metaphor is doesn't always translate with grades, but the idea that these are external markers that students, many students carry with them through their whole academic lives and even beyond, I think is a powerful way to recognize the effect that grades have on people's lives, especially those who are marginalized, who come from minoritized backgrounds, that grades mean something even more elevated for them and are, have been used inequitably to marginalize those populations even further. So that's where it came from. And I've, I workshopped it with, with scholars of literature, particularly those who specialize in feminist approaches to make sure that I was handling it with sensitivity to some of those nuances. But in, as a literature person, I'm really excited about the evolution. I love it. It resonated immediately with me. It's like, oh, that's such a good title. I, I was listening <laughs> to a podcast or something recently that was talking about if the idea for the book or the work doesn't come into a title or a phrase or something concrete, like the idea isn't there yet. It was somebody talking about their process in writing books. Right. And I shortly after came across this, and I was like, I get, I see the whole thing and the fact that you're you're wearing this letter in public mm -hmm. that tells everyone you meet, I have made this mistake. Right. Now this is I am identity. a C student. Yeah, I am a C student. I am a B student. It just, I think it, the grades have a resonance that we don't, we don't often think about. Absolutely. And that it ties back again to your first book. It ends with that chapter on failure. Mm -hmm. learning from failure but the chapter is called failure and i i love it. i think that's such a powerful edgy kind of concept in the work that we do with faculty and with students but i'm curious if there is as you're thinking about failure from the scarlet letter the f mm -hmm. this is in in most of our, right. our higher ed and in, in north america anyways the real letter of fear what are some of the things that that you would say to a student who is afraid of the word failure or afraid of the experience of failure. Right. That is because students have been conditioned for at least 12 years by the time they get to us to fear failure. It's a real, it's a real issue and one that I empathize with. I think like experiments with grading, talking about the, how to experience failure and how to learn from failure requires a lot of work throughout the semester. And requires some trust and vulnerability and helping students to, to see what the possibilities are. I will say that it was a lot of fun to write that chapter for how humans learn, because although I was familiar with the science of making mistakes and how we learn being uh, an important part of the cycle, we try something, we make a mistake, we get feedback, we do it again. Seeing how actual faculty we're building pedagogies with failure at the heart of them so that students can, can learn how to take intellectual risks in low stakes environment where they won't be 
penalized or using it to help them develop more conceptual understanding, starting with something that they can't know the full answer to, but asking them to try to figure out what they might need to know in order to answer a problem uh, and how that uh, just the studies on how effective that was for helping them eventually develop understanding. It was just really, it was energizing and motivating to say, this isn't just something I can talk about now in theory and that some people might agree with and others might not, but that, that there are lots of folks out here who are experimenting with ways that we can do this, not only make students more comfortable with take, make, taking the kind of chances that we hope they will take to develop the new ideas of the world, but also using them on a more routine basis to help them learn more effectively. So we've touched on how we learn. We've touched on some of your successes, these books, the one that's coming out, but the previous one was such such a great book. And we've talked about storytelling and failure. So I'm going to invite you, if you feel comfortable, to share with us a story of a failure that taught you something in your role as an educational developer that right. others might be able to learn from. Wow. There are so many to choose from, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I think, so I'll share two very quickly. One uh, from the perspective of teacher and one from educational development. And from a teaching point of view, I, I've shared this in some other contexts in the past, that when I first started teaching literature classes, I did basically what I had been experienced as a student. And for a lot of literature classes, that means reading quizzes at the beginning of of, of the class session to see if people read. And I had this moment where I was teaching a medieval literature course, which is, was my background. And we read this really com complex poem called Pearl, which is uses a lot of symbolism and allegory to essentially talk about a father dealing with the death of his two-year-old daughter. And I walked in and I heard students talking about this poem passionately. And it was clear they understood it and were moved by it. And then I gave this reading quiz about some of the basics and the failure rate was quite high, let me tell you. And so when I sat down to think about the discrepancy there from what I heard with what I was seeing on the quizzes, I thought this way, this pedagogy is a failure. This is not doing at all what I intended for it to do because I know they read, I heard them talking about it. And so they just because they can't answer my arbitrary trivia about the text doesn't mean that they don't understand it. So that was a key moment in the, the early development of my teaching where I shifted to reading responses that at that time they brought in, but then with the LMS, they, they began to upload electronically where they would choose a passage and reflect on it. And to me, that moved me more in the direction that I wanted to go in to to see how they could interpret the literature rather than just remembering what the guy on page 42 in the red shirt did. And so that was a failure that led me to more productive pedagogies. I think the other, the type of failures that I've experienced as an educational developer that have taught me the most are when I have been a part of institutional initiatives like redesigning student evaluations or something like that, that have uh, parts of it have succeeded, but ultimately have, they were not approved in the end so for some reason, what they, for, some, for some reason, by some or for some purpose. And that taught me that just that two things, one, good ideas 
are not often implemented just because they are good. That everyone can agree that it's a good idea and it can still not, not be approved in the end. And so there has to be infrastructure, support, and I think a knowledge of the organization and the systems as a part of moving a good idea from beginning to approval. So I learned that was an important lesson. And I also learned that just because a good idea doesn't get approved does not mean that it reflects poorly on the work of those either in the teaching center or if you're a part of a committee on that committee, right? It means that there were political dimensions that were outside of the control of the group trying to advance change. And that can ultimately be why a great idea ultimately does not pass. And so that helped me to disinvest personally from, as a personal reflection on me, on my failure, but it also taught me a lot about how organizational change actually happens and to learn new ways, better ways to uh, maneuver within the organization to help those initiatives really come to fruition. So those are the kinds of failures I'd learned from as an educational developer. So valuable. I hate that lesson, man. <laughs> it's a hard lesson. I to say. It's not a fun one, but it's so when a wrap up calling us back to the question I said I was going to ask, what are you reading right now? And what are you thinking about it? What's a book in our field that has got you thinking? Let's see. Since I finished my revisions for the book a few weeks ago, I've been, I have a couple. I'm rereading Bettina Loves. I just have it right beside me here. We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. It's, I can't, say how enough how brilliant that book is but there are also two new books one on report cards a cultural history that's from johns hopkins university press and then a book by jack schneider and ethan hutt from harvard university press it just came out it's called off the mark and it's about grading and standardized testing and the overall effect that's having on education today not good i'm guessing not good no not good <laughs> but I will say it leans, although grades are in the title, it leans more heavily on transcripts and testing as being the real drivers of inequity. Is there anything else on your mind when you're thinking about educational development writ large or your work? For me, educational development is about people, and it's always about people and the individuals who are day in and day out trying their best in the classroom and just want to. Uh, do better. And I, one reason I love teaching is because it's the kind of profession that you never perfect. You can always just keep getting better and better throughout your career. And so it's always for me been about people. And I do want to say the people who I currently work with, Emily Donahoe, Liz Norell, and Derek Bruff have just been some of the most amazing that I've worked with in my career. And so I want to make sure that I, I give them a named shout out because those are the people that, that, that helped me be a better educational developer. So thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. I've really enjoyed the questions.